0: of CU Medieval Radio. Uh, it's past perfect. Uh, my name is Stephen Powell and uh, today we have with us Dr. Robert Ousterhout. He's the Professor of History of Art and Director for the Center for Ancient Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign where he taught for more than 20 years before joining the History of Art faculty at University of Pennsylvania. He teaches courses in uh, Byzantine art and architectural history, and he was uh, recently attending the Central European University um, for a conference here in Budapest. Uh, thanks for joining us.
1: It's good to be here,
0: and uh, thanks for joining as well on such short notice and despite the uh, inclement weather.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Today was a strange day in Budapest.
0: <laughs> so. Um, you were recently at this conference, um, Pirosca and the Pantocrator Dynastic Memory, Healing, and Salvation in Konenian, if I'm pronouncing it right, Constantinople. Uh, that was organized by Marianne Saidi from our own university. And you uh, delivered the keynote lecture uh, titled Pirosca and the Pantocrator. You can uh, talk about uh, this conference. What the topic is, Piroshka and the Pantocrator, might not sound like much to someone outside of the Byzantine.
1: Well, if you look up Piroshka on Google, what you find is Little Red Riding Hood. But in fact, Piroshka was the daughter of King Ladislav of, of uh, Hungary. And in the early 12th century, she was married to the Byzantine Emperor John II Komnenos. She was, in fact, the first in a long line of Western European princesses that were married for diplomatic reasons into the Byzantine imperial family. Uh, We know what she looked like from her imperial portrait that appears in the gallery of Hagia Sophia. She uh, seems to be elegant with an aquiline nose and long blonde hair, which she wears in braids. And... Um, we know her uh, good deeds primarily from the Patecrater Monastery, which was the most important uh, uh, architectural undertaking of the 12th century. The Monastery was co-founded with her husband, the Emperor John, and it included not just a monastery, but it was three large inner, uh, adjoining churches that included uh, a church dedicated to Christ that was the main church of the monastery, a church dedicated uh, to the Virgin Mary, which was served by a lay clergy and open to people from outside the monastery. Sandwiched between them was the imperial mausoleum for the Comnenos family, where John and Irene and several of their children were subsequently buried. The monastery also included a hospital, an old folks' home, and a leprosarium. Um, and we have the surviving uh, foundation charter known as the Tipicon of the monastery um, that was uh, completed. The document uh, is dated 1036. It's written in the hand of John, although probably written by someone from the monastery and not the emperor himself, but uh, written two years after the death of Piroshke Irini, And um, so uh, we're left with a little bit of a quandary for the Typicon credits everything to John. He really uses the monastery as a uh, a monument of triumph. He's a a warring emperor who is fighting against the Turks Mm -hmm. in attempts to reconquer uh, Anatolia. He comes from a family of warriors known for their uh, military uh, valor. But when we turn to uh, religious documents of the same period, Irini is presented as a saint, and she's remembered on her death day in Constantinople. And from the Synaxarion, which is the list of commemorations organized by day for the uh, Orthodox liturgical calendar, we learn a great deal about her. We learn, for example, that she began the construction of the monastery Um, And once it was begun, wanted it to uh, be bigger and uh, begged her husband for additional funds uh, to expand the monastery. So she seems to be the driving force behind it.
0: Right. I remember uh, during your keynote uh, talk that you mentioned uh, there was an episode of her weeping uh, on the floor of a certain... uh,
1: Yes, the Synaxarion says very picturesquely that she bathed the floor with her tears and refused to rise until her husband agreed to support the additional construction of the monastery.
0: So was the Synaxarion uh, sort of written after the, after her lifetime as a tribute to her?
1: This seems most likely. Um, the uh, typicon kind of the monastery, the charter of the monastery, Um, mentions nothing of her alleged sanctity. But it seems that under her son, who is the succeeding emperor Manuel Komnenos, she is promoted to uh, sainthood and her good deeds are uh, put forward. This seems to be, um, from a political perspective, using her sanctity to promote the family cause, as uh, previous Byzantine emperors had done with holy women.
0: And she also had a family cause on her Hungarian side of of sanctity and holiness to uphold, maybe. Who is this Ladislaus?
1: Well, um, there is a tradition of saintly kingship in Hungary, and my colleagues here at Central European University know far more about it than I do, so uh, what I know is that Ladislaw is promoted as a saint. What's interesting is that he is promoted from within Hungary, but as a Catholic saint, whereas Poroshka, who is married into the Byzantine imperial family, uh, is promoted as an Orthodox saint. And it seems that in the 12th century, the split between um, Rome and Constantinople in the the church uh, structure is not as big a deal as it becomes later. We traditionally see a date in the middle of the 11th century as the parting of the ways, but it seems it's not really critical until the 13th century.
0: Because otherwise, maybe marriages like this wouldn't be happening. Uh, I don't know if Hungary was so... It was You'd think of it as Western Christendom, though, rather than...
1: Yeah, it certainly falls within um, the Catholic sphere of influence. Um, they answer to Rome uh, in terms of their uh, church authority. But there is a real sort of tug-of-war in the Middle Ages for uh, political control. Um, Serbia is pushing at the borders of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Norman Sicily is also posing a threat. And the Byzantine Empire is looking for allies to sort of balance um, the power in uh, Central Europe and the Adriatic.
0: So, uh, returning to this topic of the Panto Crater, uh, just, uh, you mentioned it's a, it was an old folks' home, uh, hospital besides the...
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, for most people listening, that might surprise them that there were such a thing as old folks' homes in the... Is this an old tradition,
1: a long tradition? There's, um, there's a long tradition of public benefaction in uh, Constantinople. And one of the guiding forces although that sounds a little bit strange is thinking about the hereafter. Um, what happens after we die? And for the Byzantines, this is a question that is never fully answered. What happens after death? What happens between the time of our uh, demise and uh, last judgment?
0: Right.
1: Where do our souls go? And the Byzantines never really have a firm answer to this. But what comes out in the literature is that the um, the, uh, afterlife is a little bit like the New Jersey Turnpike. You have to keep paying in order to keep driving. And the payment is in the form of prayer. And that is one needs constant prayer to see you on your way to final salvation. So when we read um, the monastic typica for the aristocracy or for members of the imperial family who are founding monasteries, what they're interested in is the commemoration of themselves and their families after death in perpetuity. It's very clear that they want this not just to happen for a few days or a few years. They want it to happen regularly and they want it to happen forever. Of course it doesn't, but for, uh, for our purposes, it's very interesting to see the prescriptions in uh, these monastic documents about how and who is uh, remembered, how the, how the um, memorial service is to be conducted. The Pana Monastery has the most lavish commemorations of any of the monastic documents that we have from Byzantium. Um, The family wants an icon parade rerouted from one of the major churches in the city on its way to Constantinople to bring the icons into the church and have them rest overnight at the tombs of the founders. Having um, a church officiated by a lay congregation, having the hospital, having the old folks home, the inmates in the hospital, the inmates in the old folks home are obliged to play, pray on a regular basis for the founders of the monastery, so um, uh, Peroschka and John and their family are really getting it from both sides. They're getting um, the lay folk um, praying on their behalf. They're getting a civic procession coming to their tombs with uh, with the most revered icons in the city, and they have the monks of the monastery playing on their, praying on their behalf.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, about the crater itself, it's uh, today, you know, that was then. Now it's the uh, Zarek Jami, is that mm-hmm. yeah. approximated? And uh, modern political and governmental issues have cropped up and complicated your own work at mm-hmm. the site, your own archaeological work. Do you care to comment on those issues?
1: Well, um, first, uh, the building has a long and very rich history. And when the city was um, taken by uh, Mehmet the Conqueror on May 29th, uh, 1453, um, one of the first acts was to convert Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And then there's a gradual conversion of Christian properties into Muslim use. Um, what we see in the neighborhood of the Paddockrotter was the most important burial church of the city, which was known as the Holy Apostles. This was founded by Constantine, rebuilt by Justinian, and it was the major imperial um, burial church. Constantine was buried there, Justinian was buried there. All the great emperors of the past were buried there. The great patriarchs, John Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzos, are also buried there. So it's a very, very important building. And what Fatih Mehmet does when he takes the city is he decides Hagia Sophia shall be retained as a symbol of his triumph. And so it is converted to a mosque with very little transformation. But the Church of the Holy Apostles is torn down, and the Mosque of the Conqueror is built in its place. with the mausoleum of um, Mehmet the Conqueror there as well. So in effect, he is refounding the city and the church that marked the foundation of the city by Constantine and by Justinian, that is replaced by his own building and his own mausoleum. Now, when um, a mosque is built, it usually has a, a series of buildings around it, a sort of neighborhood develops around the mosque with um, a variety of different buildings, schools, law courts, um, uh, soup kitchens, um, and theological schools, and so on. So there will be a complex of buildings that go along with each of these great mosque complexes. And when um, the Mosque of the Conqueror is built, the churches that are in the immediate vicinity become... um, subsidiary structures to the new mosque. So Zeyrek Jami is, is, um, um becomes transferred to Ottoman usage by Mehmet the Conqueror to be a subsidiary to the Mosque of the Conqueror. So for um, Ottoman thought, this is really very important and it puts the building in a very significant position for uh, Turkish Ottoman history. So the building really has a second life as an imperial mosque. Um, And that's something that, as we look at the building today, we can't just simply say, oh, it's a Byzantine church. But we have to think of a a building like this as the sum of its history, to think of it as a building that has had a long and colorful life.
0: All right, well, we're going to just go to a break now, our first break. And uh, when we get back, we'll continue with... uh... Past Perfect and uh, Dr. Robert Ousterhold. sort of past perfect with Dr. Robert Osterhout. Uh, we were just talking about the Pantocrator, or as it's become, the Zarek Jammy, and um, the complex history that involves the conquest of the city of Constantinople and the transformation, the religious uh, component. Um, in modern times, uh, you've done some work on the restoration of that site that you mentioned in your keynote lecture. Uh, what, what sort of things did you discover? What sort of uh, conclusions did you make? And what was the outcome?
1: Well, this was a, a project I undertook uh, in collaboration with uh, two of my Turkish colleagues, uh, professors uh, Zeynep and Metin Ahunbay of Istanbul Technical University. And we, uh, in the mid 1990s, began to investigate a way to work on um, the restoration of the building because it had fallen into a dilapidated state. And for a building that is so important for Byzantine history and, of course, also for Ottoman history, it seemed a real shame to um, let it fall into decay. My interests in um, uh, conserving the building were um, also thinking in terms of this is a building that had never been fully explored archeologically. And so although it's virtually impossible to undertake a major archeological project in Istanbul today and in a functioning mosque, um, with the process of conservation, uh, there was the opportunity to really study the building up close and personal and to uh, observe the details of its construction history. Um, that, for me, was really very, very valuable. But um, I have to say, in terms of its preservation, the building was a real mess. And we devoted um, eight years primarily to working on stabilizing the roof of the building. Now, we have a complex that has three... To
0: avoid, like, a collapse, an imminent collapse?
1: Um, the, The building had been badly restored in the 1960s and at that time um, they had put a concrete, reinforced concrete cap on the building. Now when you think about it, this is not just one building, it's a complex of three churches side by side with very irregular vaulting and five domes. So it's, uh, putting a, a cover on it was really a complex issue and they did it very badly. Now in historic buildings, Concrete is always the wrong material to use. Concrete is brittle and it cracks. It doesn't work well in terms of tension. Um, the building is constructed of brick and lime mortar, and lime mortar is uh, has properties that are really very special, particularly in a region like Istanbul where there's a lot of ground movement. Istanbul has a series uh, has a history of earthquake, um, and so what one finds with lime mortar is that the building will adjust to minor movements of the earth. The lime mortar will develop micro cracks, but then these will re-solidify. It's part of the chemical property of the lime mortar. Mm -hmm. So in an area like Istanbul, this is really the perfect solution. Uh, Lime mortar will allow the building to settle with earth movements without severe cracking. Now, what happened was with the concrete crack, a concrete cap on the building, when there was uh, any sort of movement, the roof would crack um, and begin to leak. And then somebody would go up on the roof and put another layer of concrete on the roof. And so we had a sort of palimpsest of concrete on the uh, roofs of the building that were leaking. But they were also obscuring what was going on underneath with the vaulting of the building. We really didn't know what to expect, except that the concrete was um, doing more damage than good, and it had to be removed. And so much of our work was devoted to removing section by section the concrete from the vaults of the building. What we discovered, much to our dismay, was that the vaults were severely cracked, and so as we worked, we would never meet our expected um, um, deadlines because we'd remove a section of concrete. There would be huge cracks there. We would have to brace the building underneath. You know, The, the uh, historic vaulting was really being held up by the concrete attached to its outer surface. So we would put um, scaffolding in underneath to hold up the vaulting while we stitched the vaults back together, then capped it with a cap of lime mortar rather than concrete, and then put a layer of clay over the top of that before we restored um, the lead sheeting on the, uh, on the roof.
0: When, uh, when you say restored the lead sheeting, was there still lead there that could be
1: Extracted or in order, did it require a new modern? It re- required a new modern uh, system of lead sheeting. We know from descriptions of Byzantine buildings the standard covering, um, well, was either um, lead sheets or it was ceramic tile. More expensive building like the Pantocrator would have had lead sheets on yeah. the roof, and in a number of buildings of similar quality, we found evidence of the original um, lead sheets. We didn't at the Patercrotter, but I can say with much confidence that it was originally covered with lead.
0: So um, it seems like you and your colleagues did a really uh, useful thing for archaeology by even uh, preventing the imminent collapse of this structure. Kind of um, sure
1: I, I, think, I think we did uh, a great surface. The difficulty was that... For most of the time we were working on the building, we were out of sight. And so we would show up every day, disappear up on the roof, and no one would be aware of the complexity of the problem we were dealing with. Something that if, unless you're up on the roof seeing um, the very fragile nature of the uh, vaulting, it, it simply you're simply not aware that there's a serious problem there. So as a consequence, um, they uh, the mosque authorities did not really understand the severity of what we were doing. And uh, the other thing that we never really saw eye to eye on was we always insisted that the building has to have a function in um, current society. For a church to function as a mosque is in many instances a good thing because it means... Community takes ownership of it and will look after it. And uh, for a building like the Zarek Jami, this I thought was particularly important. Of course, the building didn't belong to us, it was basically being loaned to us to restore, but it remained um, um, possession of the Directorate of Pious Foundations. Um, But we argued as we were working that the building could function as a mosque, but it also had to be recognized as a historic monument, uh, that these weren't mutually exclusive designations. As a historic monument, there are international preservation guidelines one follows in uh, any interventions in the building. This would mean, for example, Interventions are documented, interventions are reversible, interventions don't harm the existing fabric of the building, and uh, so on. Um, What we found as we began to work is that most projects in Turkey, even those dealing with historic buildings, um, if the funding is coming from the government, the project has to be sent out for bid, and the project goes to the low bid contractor. Now, this is fine if you're building a hotel or building a school, or building a modern building, but if you're restoring a historic building, there's a certain level of expertise that is absolutely necessary in order to do it properly. And we found the hard way working with a team provided by the municipality of Istanbul that they simply had no experience. They had no idea what they were getting into. They, in fact, um, went broke the first year and never forgave us. And after that, we said we're not working with government money because we lose control. We have to raise the funds ourselves um, so that we can hire the skilled team of workmen um, who can do the job properly.
0: So the, the government will just choose the cheapest contractors.
1: Can yeah, fund. yeah. And so we um, took control that way, but it also meant the responsibility of um, raising the funds. And then you can imagine there's also bureaucracy involved. We had to um, have a legally binding agreement between uh, the directorate of Pious Foundation's Istanbul Technical University as the host institution, and... Um, the contractor in charge of the project. If one per, one party didn't agree, our whole um, project fell apart. Right. Uh, so there were a lot of. Um, it was a, a juggling act with a lot of balls that had to be kept in the air. <laughs>
0: um, so when did this? When did your restoration start? Uh, work finish.
1: We worked between, um, we started in 1997 and we finished um, what we were allowed to do in 2005. At that point, um, we had gained the trust of UNESCO and they were um, funding um, the work. I had um, looked to a lot of private um, benefactors for support up until that point. But at that point, the um, political situation in Turkey became uh, less favorable. And uh, it was felt that we were perhaps a little bit too secular in our approach. And um, following the uh, rather dramatic NATO meeting in Istanbul in 2004, uh, our permit was um, withdrawn. And the project was given, ultimately, to a contractor through the municipality.
0: I think you mentioned in your keynote speech as well that uh, afterwards some changes were made over the work you guys had done, plastering I know, or... um,
1: If you go to um, the Zarek Jami today, you will see very little indication that we were ever there. Uh, the contractor basically redid everything we did And uh, the building was restored in a very heavy-handed manner. We wanted to keep the building visible so that the historic masonry was exposed so that we could understand the history of the the building. Uh, The contractor has basically plastered all available surfaces and replaced large areas of the original masonry. Do you think
0: it's in a way, it's I I don't know, are they? Is it? Are they doing these things just because it's a, They have a different set of priorities that don't necessarily gel, and they don't uh, value perhaps the seeing a 12th century building for them. It's it's more important that it functions. What what's what's the motivation there?
1: Well, I think um, the motivation is um, uh, driven by conservative religion. And unfortunately, Turkey right now has a prime minister-turned-president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who um, chooses to use um, religion as a political weapon. And uh, so uh, his um, whole approach in recent years, if you look at the um, Financial Times last Saturday, which is the 6th of June issue of the Financial Times. It's a rather interesting article by Daniel Dombey on uh, the politics in Turkey today. What um, Erdogan did in the recent election was he really posed himself as a neo-Ottoman. Um, you will see him in a uh, photo ops with the Ottoman guards standing behind him and rather anachronistically. And he is using slogans like We Will Conquer, um, sounding very much like Fatih Mehmet. And um, Mr. Dombey of the time, of the Financial Times questions whether um, the treatment of the Byzantine monuments of the city um, are sort of part of, ultimately part of this strategy of reconquest.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Elster, we're going to take our second break, but when we get back, we can uh, talk a lot more about this um, return to Ottoman style rhetoric and the future of Byzantine artifacts, as well as your own work and what you've been doing in Hungary. Uh, past perfect, uh, and we have today Dr. Robert Austerhout, and he's talking today about um, the future and the fate of Byzantine medieval churches uh, in uh, a newly, uh, a changing Turkey today. So, uh, Dr. Austerhout, could we talk about another Byzantine church that you worked on, the uh, Church of the Holy Savior in Korah, also known as the, I think, Karia Jami? The- yes,
1: Karia Jami.
0: Uh, It's another church come mosque uh, facing an uncertain future, perhaps, and you've done a lot of work on it. Uh,
1: Well, this is um, a building that was a major, major project of the 20th century. Um, When uh, the Turkish Republic was formed um, in the uh, 1920s and 30s, what we see is a program by the government at that time of f- taking certain uh, buildings of particular historic merit and turning them into museums. Um, so we see from the period of Ataturk and uh, the foundation of the Republic, Hagia Sophia um, is transformed into a museum. Um, the uh, Kariyajami or Monastery of the Korah transformed into a museum. Hagia Sophia in Trebizond becomes a museum. Um, The Church of St. John in the Studion, now a ruin, um, is transferred to the uh, Ministry of Culture from the Directorate of Pious Foundations. Hagia Irini in Istanbul uh, undergoes a similar uh, um, transformation. It belongs to the Ministry of Culture. with these buildings now, um, there is um, a belief, and it's really um, the Islamist powers of the, um, uh, the AKP, the governing party in uh, Turkey, flexing its muscle with one of the ministers saying, if a building was a mosque, it's always a mosque. It can be nothing else. And so there's been a major campaign to reopen all buildings that once functioned as mosques, as mosques again. Um, This happened in um, Iznik Nicaea with the Church of Hagia Sophia there. And something about the name Hagia Sophia appeals to them. Ultimately, they want the Church of Hagia Sophia, the uh, Museum of Hagia Sophia, to be reopened as a mosque. Um, And so the... um, uh, one of the ministers has said, in effect, five down and two to go. You know, all buildings named Hagia Sophia must be mosques. And it's a kind of bizarre um, form of um, politicking. Now, in uh, Iznik Nicaea, the church was a museum. And um, when it's transformed into a mosque, the local people are afraid that they're really going to lose the tourism
0: I was just going
1: to ask and the same in um, Trabzon where the locals um, opposed the idea of reopening hagia sophia as a um, mosque the building had been lovingly restored by um, um, david talbot rice and a team from uh, edinburgh in um, the 19 uh, i guess the early 1960s and had been functioning as a museum since sometime in the 1950s, um, filled with beautiful mosaic floor and um, frescoes of the 13th centuries on the walls and vaults. What they did when they transformed the building into a mosque was they built a sort of tent inside the building and covered the floors with carpets so that one can worship inside this building and not be offended by any Christian decoration in the building.
0: See, that's the thing. I mean, uh, you would obviously know this a lot more, but it seems like the move from secularization actually represents a loss of this Byzantine heritage. And that's a
1: covering over it. Well, when you you think about it, and um, this is so obvious to me traveling around Hungary, is one sees, in most countries, you... Uh, construct a national identity by building on the past. Turkey is the exact opposite of this. Modern Turkish, the modern Turkish Republic founded its identity by severing its connections with the um, immediate past. So um, for the Republic um, to redefine the country, this was really very important. But we've seen um, in recent years this sort of backsliding into the Ottoman period where there's this sort of neo-Ottoman triumphalism at work. And in both situations, the best the Byzantine past can do is to remain conquered. Um, And this is really uh, unfortunate because this is really the history of Turkey. Um, It's not as if one people left and another people arrived. Um, most Turks today are the descendants of the traditional, um, um, in, uh, the traditional population that was there. Um, but it's much better if you're a Turk to be able to say, "I'm the descendant of Mehmet the Conqueror," than to say, "I'm the descendant of those poor Byzantines who lost every battle they fought." <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you were born in countless other groups moving through the yeah, region. Um, Anatolia is, has, a, of course. a Endless, well not endless, but a long history of different nations and Medians.
1: There's, I mean, it's a very, very rich history. And one of the the questions one always has to ask with history is um, how many narratives are there and how do they work together? There's always a danger of picking one dominant narrative and letting it silence all others. History is a messy process, and we have to um, not uh, attempt to not rewrite it to our own ends, but to let the various um, players in history speak for themselves.
0: Uh, I saw an article you wrote in 2014, I think. It was in the American Conservative, or at least the link uh, to it yeah. was. And it was about um, the future of these museums. And you would you would like to see them stay museums, right, rather than be moved into mosques and... How can that be
1: helped? Well, my my feeling is always that um, the dialogue here has been misrepresented as a religious dialogue. And what we're seeing is, in effect, an attempt to rewrite history. Um, And so the enemy here is not necessarily Christian. The enemy is um, the messiness of history. And rather than embrace that with, you know, all of the uh, dynamics that go with it, uh, uh, the Turkish government often chooses a rather simplistic vision of the past. Um, I would like to see historic monuments remain historic monuments, however that is possible. And I, I fear, for example, with Hagia Sophia, that if it's transformed into a mosque, that means the dominant narrative becomes the Ottoman history of the building and the Byzantine period becomes subsumed in that. Um, I like having buildings that are accessible to tourists, to scholars, for study, for, um, um, for the building to function as a historical document. And I really fear the loss of that. It's interesting with the dialogue around the um, desired conversion of Hagia Sophia, the response has not been from any major political leaders. It has been from Christians who understand the building as a church rather than as a museum. And I'm trying to sort of put a wedge there and say, this is not um, a religious dialogue per se, but we're talking about history here and how history needs to be preserved and studied and understood today.
0: Well, uh, one type of relic that often preserves a layered and messy history is uh, crowns. <laughs> and We've been uh, doing some work here in Hungary, uh, and some of that relates to these medieval crowns that have uh, layers of Byzantine history built into them. Uh, what... What's the
1: findings? Well, um, I um, actually most of my work is on architecture, and I'm very happy to um, see the variety of treasures that are preserved in Hungarian museums where I'm here. But I'm I'm really not an expert on it. Um, I'm actually more interested in the, the crown of so-called crown of Constantine Monomakos um, than I am in uh, the royal crown of Hungary. Right. Um, and it's a real puzzle. Actually, both of them are real puzzles in terms of how we unravel uh, their history and how they have been uh, sort of taken up uh, in the present. The royal crown of Hungary um, seems to have been originally a woman's crown that's been sort of refitted with the, uh, the vault added on top of it to make it a male crown, so there's a Latin element, a Byzantine element uh, to it, um, that makes it really very interesting as uh, a sum of a very complex history. Do
0: you think uh, was the original woman's crown? Was that the Byzantine?
1: uh, Yeah, yeah. As far as I understand it, and I'm, you know, um, uh, I think uh, Dr. Etelikis is the person you should be interviewing about the crowns. (laughs) Everything I know, I have learned from looking at them with him.
0: Right. Well, it is, it is quite a celebrated crown yeah. that they have here. Uh, but your own work here uh, recently has brought you to Estergom and Visegrad. Yeah. Uh, what have you been doing?
1: Well, I've been, um, I've been looking at the historic sites in medieval Hungary to get a sense of um, what was happening here in the 12th century. So. Um, Piroshka the Empress Irini comes from uh, Estergom to Constantinople and to get a sense of what was medieval Hungary like what were her cultural memories of Hungary when she comes to Byzantium to be uh, the Empress right. um, and so that's been an interesting problem something I've been discussing with my colleagues here as we uh, um, put together the symposium last week, and as we're now thinking in terms of a follow-up publication that really brings out this period in Hungarian history. Um, I didn't realize, for example, as one of the uh, moderators pointed out that the portraits of Piroshki Irini in Hagia Sophia is our oldest image of a Hungarian woman.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, uh, right around that time, there's some narrative sources from outsiders that uh, Abu Hamid Mm -hmm. al-Garnati was a, I think he was Moroccan, a traveler Mm -hmm. who arrived in Hungary in the early to mid-1100s, I think mid-1100s. And then there's Otto Mm Freising, who passed through Hungary, again, describes it as an outsider. I wonder what your research might say when combined with sources like that. Picture might.
1: Um, it will be interesting to see. I don't have a fully formed picture yet. It was interesting to see some of the remains in in, uh, um, in, in Visegrad and to see Estergam. Uh, uh, um, and what we find is really very, very little that can be um, situated into the period of Irini Poroschka or Ladislaw. And uh, so this is a... a Uh, an area where I think much more research uh, can be done. The idea of situating the marriage of Piroshka and uh, the Emperor John into a historical context that involves both Hungary and the Byzantine Empire I think is really interesting. One of the things we see with um, these um, marriages of foreign princesses into um, the um, imperial family in Byzantium is that the women really have to go undergo a process of transformation where they become Byzantine. So if you look at the the uh, image of uh, Peroshka Irini and Hagia Sophia, she looks exactly like a Byzantine empress should look. She's wearing all the right regalia. She's standing properly, looking frontally with her eyes turn modestly to the side yeah. the only thing that might suggest foreignness to her is that she's got this beautiful blonde hair right. but the point is that as she is Byzantine Empress, she must behave as an aristocratic woman of the highest standing. She must do the sorts of things that an aristocratic woman in Byzantium would do.
0: Yeah, she has that stiff, noble kind of posture that can't help but evoke ideas of Elizabeth I. Uh, yeah. The paleness and the. But of course, that would be totally anachronistic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it would be. <laughs> so
0: uh, I'm just going to go to our third break now uh, mm-hmm. with this episode of Past Perfect, and we'll be right back with the conclusion. <laughs> to uh, CEU, Medieval Radio, uh, this week featuring Robert Robert Ousterhout, and uh, we're just doing a, having a very interesting conversation about uh, Byzantine history and architecture and Hungary's relationship with the Byzantine Empire, but uh, I'm afraid we've already reached our sort of uh, closing segment, so I just thought I'd ask you um, uh, about what your projects are uh, lately. What I, I heard you have two books coming out in the very near future.
1: Um, Yes, I have. a. um, My most recent project has been um, a major study of Byzantine Cappadocia, a volcanic region in central Anatolia. And for the last five years, I've been running a summer school there for graduate students in Byzantine studies. Several students from CEU have participated in that. But trying to figure out how do we write a history for a region for which we do not have written sources. So how do we use material culture? How do we use visual culture in a way that we can construct a historical narrative? So that's um, my book that is now in press with Dumbarton Oaks. My next book is a textbook on Byzantine architecture. And so I'm visiting places I don't normally go to to uh, uh, look at uh, uh, things that will go into that book. With
0: Cappadocia, uh, it's quite a—it's uh, probably another place that attracts a lot of tourists with its famous uh, cave monasteries. Mm-hmm. Those were uh, monks largely from the Byzantine Empire who came and lived in those?
1: Um, yes, it's, um, it's very much a heartland of Byzantium. One of the things I realized with my first big site survey there was that what we normally designate as monasteries there are in fact large houses or villages and that what we're looking at is an untapped resource for the study of daily life in the byzantine empire while there are monasteries in the mix there is a lot that we would regard as secular architecture there that really fills in um, a major gap in what we know about byzantine architecture we've got lots and lots of churches we don't have um, that much in the way of houses or villages preserved. So, Cappadocia really is an incredibly rich resource for um, uh, understanding just how daily life was in the Byzantine Empire.
0: What what kind of a picture is emerging that we might that might change how we think about it?
1: Well, what we're seeing is that um, the um, With the the villages that I have examined, um, we tend to think all villages are more or less the same. But I've gone in uh, attempting to look at evidence of social hierarchy within the villages and evidence of an economic basis. So, for example, um, this is an agricultural region. What kind of agriculture are they specializing in? Um, And one of the villages um, we found a very large manor house, if we can call it that, rock cut, and everything else really the equivalent of hovels. So we could see here is uh, the Lord of the Valley with all of the peasants uh, that are working for him and more than two dozen uh, wine presses in that area. So it seems that this was a village whose economy depended on wine production. Um, There's another village uh, I looked at where the houses tend to be rather high-quality, upper-class houses, um, and all of them are equipped with large stables. So it seems that this was a uh, village or community that depended on horse breeding, For its uh, economy. So one can go through by looking carefully get some sense of how these uh, different uh, villages or different living units fit within the overall uh, uh, picture of the region.
0: Well it's really exciting the research you're doing because it's going beyond our standard you know narrative sources and uh, adding layers uh, Mm -hmm. and discovering the, the real life of people in those times and uh, I really thank you and uh, all the CEU Medieval Radio t- team uh, thanks you for taking part in this uh, episode and uh, this has been Byzantine specialist and historian of art, Dr. Uh, Robert Osterhut and uh, me, Stephen Powell and that's the episode for this week <music>